my name is Cal, and welcome to another Fork in the Road brought to you by Turn Left at the Cactus. This used to be the biggest wildlife flyover refuge on the West Coast. That's basically be gone now. And it's just, it just was always an artificial water body. It never had a sustainable supply of water to keep it in existence. And as we mentioned, the salt, the salt level is just going to get higher and higher until it goes eutrophic. And then... If you've ever driven the highway between Palm Springs and San Felipe, you will have passed a very large body of water called the Salton Sea. And I wonder if you've wondered, as I have, about its history and its future. In this podcast, Tricia and Cal will be talking to a local San Felipe resident who is quite an expert on this. Listen and learn about the Salton Sea's fascinating history and its future. From the once resort and recreation destination where Sonny Bono used to water ski and what was once a refuge to many, many migratory birds that stopped and rested on their journeys north and south, we've watched the water level drop and the saline level increase. Wildlife can no longer survive in its current environment, and recreation and fishing have disappeared. What does the future hold? Will it be rescued, or will it go back to its natural state? Listen as Ron Ensweiler shares his expertise and first-hand knowledge of the Salton Sea and the Imperial Irrigation District. There may be a bright future ahead for the Salton Sea that involves supporting our transition to electric vehicles. The Salton Sea may be a gold mine of sorts, in natural resources that can be used to support our future. Hey, Tricia. Hey, Cal. How are you today? Just lovely. How can I not be here in San Felipe? I know. So, Tricia, you're a California girl. Mm-hmm. You have probably made lots of trips from Palm Springs down to this area. Yes. When was it that you first noticed that there was a huge body of water on the way down? Well, honestly, I knew about the Salton Sea for a long time growing up. Did you? Uh Uh-huh. And and You didn't think it was just a great big old lake? No, I knew it was Salton Sea. Okay. Yeah, because I'd, you know, driven by it a million times and Mm -hmm. and but what I've noticed over the last few years is that it isn't a big lake anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's looking like so many lakes in Southern California in twenty places, it's you know, you can measure 15, 20 feet below what the top should be. So it's when I've driven by it in the last two or three years, because I come to El Centro now mm-hmm. to go to San Felipe, is that there's not much activity. I don't really see that many boats anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just been kind of heartbreaking to see because it was a big deal uh, resort when I was growing up when I was a kid. And uh-huh. I was born in 54. So there was a, it was pretty active place. It was beautiful. So um, yeah, it's, it's hard to see that. Well, well, you know, many people don't know about the Salton Sea. I mm-hmm. mean, many people come down here, they pass by this great big huge body of water, and they think it's just some big old lake, and they find out later on that it is that it is the Salton Sea, right. and that it has a connection with the Colorado River, but most people don't know what that connection is. And so we're very fortunate this morning to have with us somebody who does know about the Salton Sea. Ron Ensweiler, welcome to turn left at the cactus. Hey, well, thank you for inviting me in, uh, Trisha and Cal. I look forward to discussing the issues about the Salton Sea and its history and my role in being part of the, uh, was was hopefully going to be a solution to the problem. Part of my work experience was a person who has an engineering degree in undergrad and MBA. I did lots of work on project development and 
got into water resource management in California in the 80s and 90s as sort of my principal activity. I had my own private consulting company, had contracts with various state agencies, various uh, water districts, and um, even some pri- some farmers who wanted they had drainage issues in the Central Valley. The famous uh, Kesterson Reservoir, remember, there was all the selenium poisoning of the birds back, oh, that was back in the um, 80s when we first moved to California, I think. So, um I was elected official in the town I lived in, in Northern California, so I had some public sector experience. I worked on the Contra Costa County Transportation Authority, uh, which is the county up around the Walnut Creek area. I'm not quite sure how we found out, but I, I noticed one day the Salt and Sea Authority was advertising for an executive director position. And I thought, gee, that'd be an interesting project to work on. I've always liked challenges and things that dealt with uh, engineering, finance, public uh, meetings and things like that. Sure enough, they after I must have come down and wooed them because I got the job. This was in 2004. And uh, Elena was still, our kids were still in high school, mostly at that point. Some had gone to college, but Elena was still working in San Francisco for Wells Fargo Bank. So she stayed at our home. And, and Elena is your wife. Elena, yes. But uh, she she um, stayed working up there. And we, we bought a condo down in PGA West in La Quinta. And that was, my office was, and that was a propitious moment in the C's history that was 2004, and something called the Quantification Settlement Agreement had just been reached. But before I get to that point, let me go back to day one, uh, a little bit about how the salt sea, what, what really is it in terms of a water body, and how was it formed, and how does it relate to Colorado River water rights, which are a controversial issue today. Mm-hmm. The Imperial Valley Southern California is actually the Great Salton Sink, they call it. The bottom of the Salton Sea is more than 225 feet below sea level. The Colorado River, as it drops down from all the big dams on the Colorado River system, going all the way back to Colorado and Utah and the lower basin states, you know, it sort of approaches sea level. The initial concept of irrigating the uh, Imperial Valley as an agricultural uh, farmland was around ni- late 1800s, around 1900. A couple of entrepreneurs decided they're going to divert water off the Colorado River to come in and irrigate the farmland, realizing it would be a gravity flow concept because the land kept dropping the elevation as you moved a little west and moved a little bit north. Salton Sea actually is the bottom of, the, of that sink that basically covers all of Imperial Valley and most of and even some of the Mexicali side of the border too. All the, all the water flows downhill to the Salton Sea in effect. So uh, these somewhat ambitious engineers must have not, didn't have too good of engineering experience and they built a canal off the Colorado River. They did have some weirs so they could, in a headgate, they call it to control the flows. They built a connecting link about 14 miles to connect what was basically the Alamo River that was flowing south from Mexicali area into the Salton Sea. They thought by bridging that link, they could then divert water off the river in a controlled fashion. But the river at some points, those, that canal silted up. And at around 1901, 1902, they just came on the Mexican side, and they basically just cut a, a hole in the side of the river. This was in the Colorado River was a massive flowing water body. Tried to time it so that only enough water came through to work on their farms and go to the Salton Sea. Well, as we all know, who lived here for any number of years, every now and then you get some big storms coming up the uh, Sea of Cortez. Extra rain, extra in the western states had a lot of waterfall in 0405. The whole Colorado River diverted into this canal because that was the least path of least resistance is the water sought its low point for about two or three years. Most of the Colorado River drained right through 
the Mexican side of the border into the Imperial County side and down to the Salton Sea. That was that was like that kind of what formed what is now the Al- well, it made the Alamo River much bigger and it carved a new river, which of course is called the New River. There's, if you see the signs on the highway, you see there's actually two flows down there. That went on for about two or three years, and actually the federal government had to get involved. And it was actually Southern Pacific Railroad because they had that transcontinental rail line right. on the east side of the sea, and they were afraid their rail line was going to get washed oh, out. Yeah. So they, they and the federal government and the president at that time, I think it was actually Theodore Roosevelt, they, did, they went in and um, put a permanent closure of that breach in the canal system. And that, that kind of settled things for a while. There was still some controlled irrigation into the Salton Sea, into the Imperial Irrigation Area that flowed to the Salton Sea. But the Salton Sea then reached its maximum size and really ever since that time has been contracting. Now, what also happened in that time frame is that when they when they authorized the in 1920 they authorized the Boulder Dam Act to build a Hoover Dam in a, in Colorado and in, in, on the Nevada Arizona border they also authorized what we now know and cross every time we go north the so-called All-American Canal that's called the All-American Canal because they all the Imperial Irrigation District farmers wanted everything on the US side of the border so they all they built that as a US Borough Reclamation Project and then eventually um, did a offtake at the uh, what they call the Imperial Dam, a little bit above uh, Yuma, that sort of filled that canal up as, as the permanent way to get the water rights into the um, into the Imperial Irrigation farmland. There's about six hundred thousand acres of irrigated farmland there. It takes three or four acre feet of water typically to grow around year-round crops, whether it's hay, alfalfa, cotton. They don't grow too much cotton anymore, but they used to. And of course, the um, vegetable crops that they're famous for in the winter months. But so actually, since IID was the original diverter of water off the Colorado River. They have what's called prior perfected water rights because that's how the water law in the West works. The first diverter gets the right to the water and has senior water rights above the secondary and tertiary diverters. So they perfect it. It was about 2.8 million feet of water because, like I said, it takes about four or five acre feet to um, irrigate all that land they have at full production. And by the way, when I say IID, it also includes the irrigated land in Coachella Valley. They actually don't have a direct water right, but it does. They have a sub right under the IID's water right. That's kind of how that works. There is a canal that goes up along the east side there that is uh, goes in to um, irrigate some of that uh, vegetable crops there on the north end of the Salton Sea. But that's the Coachella Valley Water District. So that's kind of how it worked for 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. All the way until they built they built um, Glen Canyon Dam up on the uh, Colorado border, I guess, with Arizona. Then all these western cities started growing, like Las Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, Metropolitan Water District, which is the big dog water authority on the Pacific coast. It covers all of the L.A. basin. San Diego gets its water from Colorado River as a subset of the I of the uh, Metropolitan Water District's water rights. But the bottom line is that the state of California has total water rights for 4.4 million acre feet. And the IID was getting 2.8 million of that, almost more than 50%, 60%. Metropolitan got the rest. Some of the farmers up on the Colorado River around Palo Verde got more. And I said San Diego had a subright during World War II. They got a subright of the um, Colorado River. Could remember the Colorado River Aqueduct was put in at that point. So they got a subright on that. But anyhow, uh, it's always been, and then now we're in a much more urban development, all these big cities came in, water got more scarce. The upper basin used to not use all of its rights, so it didn't kind of matter that people were over-appropriating the use of water in the southern basin, they call it. But that stopped in 2003, and they passed a new uh, Federal Quantification Settlement Act that presumably 
stabilize these water rights and allowed for water transfers, which is what everyone wanted to see because obviously growing alfalfa in the desert um, using three or four acre feet of water a year to raise a crop that's sold for, you know, one tenth of the value of everything. And give you an idea, by the way, the Bureau of Reclamation runs that whole system, you know, for the dams and the water, uh, the water canals and all that. Farmers pay 10, 15 bucks an acre foot and they even get credit back for the hydropower that they get cheap power off all those dams because that's part of the Western Power Authority. Uh, you know, when Carlsbad built a desalination water plant, many people I'm sure are familiar right off the I-5 there as you drive through Carlsbad about 10 years ago, I think it was, that water is over $1,000 an acre foot, maybe even 1200 by now. With, you know, it's, and it's electrically energy intensive. So, I mean, you, you know, that's going to be... So, that's always been the disproportionate reality of the water situation on the Colorado River. But, you know, these, as I mentioned earlier, the IID had their prior perfected rights. And there was a Supreme Court case in 1933 that put all that down as a federal national law. Not, not to overlook it, by the way, Mexico gets 1.5 million acre feet the U.S. appropriators have to leave 1.5 million in that crosses the border, goes to the Morales Dam. Mm-hmm. About 100,000 feet of that per year, maybe a little more, gets diverted over to Tijuana. There's that, if you drive along the Highway 3, you see that some of those pump stations, the canals. Mm-hmm. The rest of it goes to irrigate Mexicali Valley, which that's why they get about a million acre feet. IID was getting, you know, two or three times that. So that's why IID is a much bigger irrigation area than down here. And what happened in 2000, since, as I mentioned, that this big sentinel agreement went in 2004, and that's where the board hired me because they wanted someone who could put together a, what was going to be basically a billion dollar project to finance the stabilization and the maintenance of the Salton Sea. Trish, just what you mentioned from your days, remember there's a Sunny Boner used to go water skiing there. All these movie stars from Hollywood were vacationed there from Palm Springs, actually, they'd come out and vacation there. Uh, there was a stable water level. Matter of fact, the yacht club, there really is a yacht club up there on the North Shore. And even when I was there in the early 2000s, there was still water, and they still had boats there. I mean, they're still in the state park right next to it. So, I mean, Coachella Valley just going like, you know, new subdivisions, new golf courses. I think there's like 78 golf courses or something. So, they needed all that water too. But that's, um, so as that worked out, there's a very, lot of optimism that this project was feasible. And I was a technical guy, and we hired an engineering firm that was very expertise, financeable, because the idea was, there are going to be hundreds of homes around the Salton Sea built. Most of the, as you drive up the Highway 78 before you get to Salton City, uh, all that land on the east side there is actually federal land because that was a Navy test base during World War II. Some old buildings out there and things like that. But Mary Bono was our congresswoman at that point. So she was going to get all that land turned over to us. We had developers lining up to come meet me in my office about who's going to build what homes and how's that all going to work out and how we're going to divide the sea up into a habitat place and a recreational water body and, and fishing, you know, preserve fishing. But um, Then what happened, Ron? Well, uh, let me ex- let me explain one thing okay. first, okay. Back, but now get to the, what okay. happened, uh, okay. Cal, because since the Salton Sea had all that influx of water when the dam, that... that um, Break in the uh, right in the, uh, came nineteen thirty well, and then and then they diverted it and then right. what what happened was that the level of the Salton Sea stabilized. This is why during those heydays there was a st- steady water level because the amount of agricultural drainage water coming off the farms equaled the amount of water that was evaporating from the sea. Uh-huh. So you had mm-hmm. sort of a stable situation. 
So that, that aspect of things, as long as the IID got their 2.8 million acre feet, as long as they farmed 600,000 acres, there's enough water, about 300,000 feet, coming in the sea to stabilize its elevation. What was, what was happening, though, is since the, the, the salt that washes off with that drain water mm-hmm. and the fertilizer residue and that sort of things, it stayed in the sea. In other words, it didn't evaporate. So the salinity of the salt in the sea started climbing from you know, a relatively low number like five or 10,000, which is sort of brackish water, and all the way up to sea levels about 40,000. So at some point, it got so salty just by that natural process of evaporation of the fresh water and the salt and the other uh, chemicals, phosphorus and nitrogen, by the way, the big problem ones, because that, that's what caused the oxygen levels to go down, things like that. So anyhow, that stabilized, and that's why they knew when they started transferring water out in the after this quantification settlement agreement, they had to do something to bring the water to mitigate the water. So um, to 2017, that's why everything stayed pretty constant to 2017 because there was something called the mitigation water deal where IID had to put enough water in the from its farms even to put enough water in the sea to keep it to that level. So we thought we had a, we thought we had like a 10 year window to build this project. We were going to put a dam across the sea, and that's why you could keep the water to the outside and let the da- let the inside of the sea dry up. You'd be a nice North Shore, a nice South Shore. We thought we could finance this using, a, you know, a, a assessment zone like they do. And, you know, you build any development project. And Riverside County was all into this, too, because they saw a bunch of economic development. Uh, you know, the people in, in the Coachella Valley were, too. You know, Las Vegas, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, all those places. Because, you know, it would be a recreational water body. It would not have the odor problems that were beginning to become a problem. But um, to sort of get to the end of your and answer your question, Cal, what happened, is, as you probably understood from my background, it's all about Colorado River water rights. Those big metropolitan areas I mentioned always felt that it was a crime that IID was getting all that water, water. to grow alfalfa in the desert and uh, uh, cattle feed and that sort of stuff. So um, the last thing they wanted to see was a billion-dollar project to turn the Salton Sea into a sustainable water body that had recreation, habitat, fishing, all that. Because they knew once all those property owners got in there, you're not going to take take their water. Because the only remember, the refill is always the drain water. You know, taking some of the stuff out of the drain water is not a big problem. There's treatment technologies to take the foss out and the, the nitrates. But, you know, they, they just didn't want the water to go there because they know they never could get the water. They'd never get it back. Get it back. Yeah. So as, as much as um, we worked hard and we didn't we didn't ask for any state money, we just said, just let us alone. We can do this ourselves. As I said, the Congress people, the Cong- Congresswoman Mary Bono and some of the other ones down there were uh, very supportive of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we had Washington involved and Bureau of Reclamation was okay with it as long as it didn't change their uh, operating requirements on the river. But um, I, I, this is the story I tell, Galatrish. I, I, I had my $10,000 lunch with Willie Brown. For those of you who don't know who Willie Brown is. He was a flamboyant mayor of San Francisco. He was uh, the state representative in California like 20 years. So we, we go through, we're having all this trouble because Metropolitan Water District is causing all this trouble trying to pass laws saying we can't do our project. So we go up there with Willie and you know, I had my board said, well, go hire Willie Brown as your consultant because my, my, my guy knew who he was. We go to the Swank restaurant up in the, some big hotel there in, in near the Sacramento, in the capital in Sacramento. First of all, He's not even paying attention to us, even though we're paying him, you know, because everyone's coming by shaking his hand, wanting something done, you know, all that sort of thing. So eventually um, comes over and talks to Brian to me and says, 
Oh, by the way, I researched your project um, and I talked with I talked with some of the lawmakers, you know, from the Metropolitan Water District. And they say MWD doesn't want this project. We said, OK, well, it's OK. We're not asking them to do anything. Well, you don't understand when MWD doesn't want a water project in California, it doesn't happen. So he kind of gave us the hard line truth that they have enough sway. And like he said, all this, just as we discussed here for 15 or 20 minutes, the water rights thing, it gets so complicated that their eyes gloss over, he says, and they just say, what does Met want? You know, mm-hmm. and if Metropolitan doesn't want the project, then their project's not going to go ahead. So that's kind of when, after a couple of years, we spent several hundred thousand dollars on engineering studies, financing plans. It became evident that, okay, there was never going to be a restored salt and sea because the, the water politics on the river and even within the state don't allow that. That probably was a blessing uh, to some extent because, um, of course, the housing boom in Riverside County stopped, you know, about 07, 08 when everything else stopped. The Colorado River had been into a drought mode. And everybody was just squeezing water out. The in what in the mitigation water ended in 2017. That's Trish why the water started levels started declining. And also IID was under pressure to sell more of their water to San Diego and to Metropolitan. They got money, Metropolitan would finance following programs and things like that, or water use efficiency programs. And that kind of squeezed it way down. So the sea is in a transformation now to basically just a, a sterile salt water body that will eventually um, not support habitat or wildlife. What the state has done through some of its um, some of these programs is they've carved out a few little ponds on the north on the south side where they're going to try to let the drain water go there first and then stabilize that and let that water drain and the rest good then go to the salt and see where it's otherwise becoming more and more salty. There's a way you can do that from an engineering viewpoint, but anyhow, it's a this used to be the biggest wildlife flyover refuge on the West Coast. That's basically be gone now. And it's just, it's just was always an artificial water body. It never had a sustainable supply of water to keep it in existence. And as we mentioned, the salt, the salt level is just going to get higher and higher until it goes eutrophic. And then that's good because the odors will go away, by the way. But there could be some surface exposures where the playa, where it might create some dust storms, but that's pretty much what happens all over the place. What's come up recently, two things are sort of happening up there that would be a little different than the history I just explained. Because of the severe water shortages on the Colorado River system in general, they are going to take another 3 million acre feet of water and leave it in Lake Mead. This is basically IID's water. Leave it in Lake Mead, and they're going to pay the Imperial County again to fallow. It's very unpopular up there because that takes a lot of people out of work. And that's going to even make the uh, surface, the, the water, side, the size of the lake shrink even more than it has been. But there's not that much wildlife anymore. There's no fishing, of course, and it's not even recreational. I used to, even in the early 2000s, I would kayak out there with my attorney. We'd go on Sunday morning. We always used to go out there and kayak. We just loved it. It's like our, we call it going to church. So we mm-hmm. loved being out there and doing that. Even 15 years ago, you could probably do that, but uh, it's not anymore. It'll be turned into just a dry salt link, or it depends how much water IID transfers out. The Imperial County, which I work really close with those guys, are economic development people. This is all a big project that they were involved in, in supporting. As people noticed, a lot of that land, they're starting to get the photovoltaic electrical fields put in. That's doesn't do a whole lot, though, because not a lot of jobs in there. I mean, that's, once, you build, once you build that, it just kind of sits there. You maybe clean it a little bit and service so explain it. explain that a little bit more about what does that mean well, for people uh, who don't know it. California passed a law, and it's all public utilities had to have 15% of their electric production uh, in renewable energy by some date, I don't know, 2025 or something like that. So putting these big solar photaic fields in with, okay, one thing Imperial County's got a lot of is sunshine. So um, they didn't take that much farmland out of production to put all that in. It was good for the economy, but it didn't really 
solve the water problem because that, that land was not being watered anyhow. So that's going on. So that, that's jobs and it's some construction work and maintenance work. So that's good. It's not 100% ag economy like it was historically. The other big thing, and I saw this about two weeks ago on 60 Minutes, they did a big episode on the Lithium Valley. They think that the southern end, or actually the, the eastern side of the Salton Sea, can turn into this big lithium production location in the U.S. to meet the need for lithium-ion batteries for electric, uh, electric vehicles as our country converts more to electric vehicles. Because most of the lithium around the world comes from places like Bolivia or Australia or even Western China. This would be the only de- major domestic source domestic possible source. of lithium. And as I learned sort of a 60 Minutes episode, there always has been, even since about the mid-80s, there's always a geothermal resource at the south end of the sea, some volcanic activity. Because remember, I told you, it's the lowest, one of the lowest parts. Right. It's almost as low as Death Valley. So you're a little bit closer to the core, the melting core of the earth. And so you basically go down about 5,000 feet. There's a molten brine down there, molten liquid down there that they actually pump to the surface or actually it comes up of its own pressure. They drill down. They let that stuff bubble up. It come to the surface. It's got 600 degree heat. So they basically run it through a heat exchanger, generate steam, and then turn a turbine. So there's 10 geothermal power plants on the southeast side of the Salton Sea. They've been there for 30, 35 years. It creates about 400 megawatts of electricity, which is a decent amount. They probably sell it to uh, someplace on the coast because, remember, IID gets all their power off the Western Power Authority. But anyhow, so the way that process works, the brine comes up and it has a lot of minerals in it, potassium, sodium, and, and of course, apparently lithium. So far, they've only just brought that up, extracted the sensible heat out of the fluid, and then pumped it back down on the ground. You know, and these are big operations. Um, Warren Buffett's actually a big investor in this through his Brookshire Holloway uh, you know, investment firm. So, you know, smart guy, he's know what he's doing, so it makes sense. So three pilot plants up there now where they're trying to show that before they put that brine back down into the earth, they can actually, through some chemical process, extract the lithium. The 60 minutes of it, so it means it seems like this is a done deal. It's going to be 300,000 tons of lithium produced there in five years or something. Well, the technology is still in the pilot phase. There's other environmental regulations you probably have to deal with. But, you know, the major auto companies, this one called um, Stratolantis or something, I've never heard of that, but it, it owns Chrysler and Dodge. and It's a, like a finance company, but it owns all these. And they want to buy lithium. They, and General Motors actually invested in one of these pilot plants just to have a captive source. So um, there is some optimism that, you know, that the electric vehicle business stays firm. And this is the largest available lithium resource in the United States by far. The people who are pushing this concept claim that it could supply 100% of the lithium batteries needed to, you know, to meet, I guess there's about 14 million cars sold in the U.S. every year. And they think that there could be enough potential lithium to build the batteries to support that as a mm-hmm. operational requirement. That, a lot of projections, though, and probably a long time off. But, it'd be, you know, it'd be good to see if someone's going to build a billion-dollar plant, that's a lot of jobs for construction, uh, maintenance work, and the other related activities, you know, even restaurants and motels and things like that all benefit with all these workers come in. So that would be a boom to Imperial County, which certainly could use it, particularly that side of the county, because there's very depressed areas, a lot of minority people there, a lot of migrant workers there, that sort of thing. So, um there's a lot of optimism. And there could be some maybe some more restoration work uh, in terms of the habitat areas of the Fulton Sea. But this has nothing to do with making the Salton Sea a usable water body. It's just, right. And what impact is that going to have on the water in that area? That's the other big question, Cal, that they don't tell you in the movie clip about what, okay, this is a water-intensive process because you've got to cool things. And um, 
uh, operate equipment and there's all these generation of things that water cooling. If it's enough center for Imperial County, they could probably agree not uh, to forego some of the ir- ir- irrigation water and let the let these people that want to build these big plants um, have some of the because they, they still got they sold some of their water, but they still probably use over two million, maybe two point two million acre feet per year. So that's eighty, you know, ninety nine percent of that goes to agriculture. I mean, very little goes to municipal mm-hmm. consumption. They, the farmers are gonna they're gonna. Scream about that one. Yeah. yeah. When my, in my day, they were trying to sell their water directly to, to uh, San Diego County Water Authority. And that, oh, really? that raised a bunch of trouble because they, 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 they claim these were the so-called pioneer families up there that go back to the 1800s. And they claim it was their forebearers mm-hmm. that perfected those water rights. And that uh, that really goes to their farms, not to the Imperial Irrigation District. That was an interesting legal argument. Let me tell you, some of these guys were doing that when I was up there. But anyhow... So that, that so there is a future there, and you, but and I think for in terms of our San Felipe residents and people who drive back and forth, the Salton Sea is going to get smaller and smaller. Whatever the few homes that are there now are going to just either just stay where they are, but it become an unusable water body probably within four or five years. There's really no future of ever trying to make it into a glorious usable water body again with um, skiing and fishing and recreational activities, boating, kayaking. Uh, so it's. It's going to be history, and it's, it got formed by accident, and it's going to return back to its natural state, which that's why I'm not too sure it's going to be that problematic environmentally, because that's for thousands of years, that's what it was. That's what it was. It was just a dried up salt sink lake bed like you see all over the West. Yes, you had no idea about that. And, you know, we drive, we, when we drive north on the on Highway 5 here, we go through the uh, Laguna Salada. You know, they basically, that's just another dried that's sodium chloride. That's the salt that's in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, dry lake bed that blows around some, but it, it forms a crust. It's the same sodium chloride as the predominant salt up in the Salton Sea. So that's going to be the same way to just crust over. People compare it sometimes to some of the problems in Owens Valley up in the, uh, the Sierra Nevadas up there. But that, that was a, that's a whole different salt. That was sodium bicarbonate. So I, unfortunately, I, I had to explain that at some board meetings. But I appreciate all your concern about air quality and asthma and things like that. But, you know, it's not – this isn't the same as the Owens Valley. But, you know – Oh, you don't think it is? No, it's different. No. It's a different salt. So that's, that's – oh, that you have to realize that. That's why it's not inherently going to be a, a air pollution problem. You know, anything that's blowing around can cause asthma. So that's – it doesn't say it doesn't happen, but um, right. and I think the playa will basically just crest over like the salt, like the Laguna Salada is done already. And you know, it occasionally get some water, like liquefy a little bit, then dry back up again. It's kind of interesting. One of the big the New York Times even had an article out recently. It was talking about why is it who uses all this Colorado River water and what does it go for? That you know, so you see, okay, the big mainstream media is starting to press its case against. These old water rights yeah. that mm-hmm. perpetuate a system that doesn't make a lot of doesn't. economic or business sense. And the study showed that, I, that they, they quote in their article, the New York Times article about two weeks ago, I think it was, what they call the lower basin of the Colorado River, which is all the Arizona, Nevada, Southern California, and the exporters, which are San Diego County and MMD. They run that big aqueduct across, basically parallel to the I-10 to take mm-hmm. that water over. 80% of the water is used for agricultural purposes. Mm-hmm. Only 20% goes to municipal and industrial. Of the 80% that goes to agriculture, 56% is for livestock feed, which is, you know, growing alfalfa, alfalfa to feed cattle, dairy cattle, and beef cattle. cattle. It Water takes, intensive. Yeah. It takes, this interesting statistic, mm-hmm. it, takes 38, it takes 38 gallons of water to grow the meat that's used in one quarter pounder. If you have the same amount of protein, 
and a tofu burger. And I'm not, I'm not just, I'm just, it's five gallons of water. I'm not advertising tofu burgers. You can see now where the water rights issue is going to play into the environmental movement. And, um, and of course, if you can, hey, make lithium batteries out there, that's even better because now you can self-supply the um, battery resources for the American, the auto American auto car fleet as an EV fleet. So, um, these are interesting things. I, at some point, there may be some change in how these water rights work. But you know, the, enough money comes to play, they could probably do what they want, just you know, shut down the agricultural and uh, activity, maybe except for the winter vegetables or something like that in the Imperial Valley. You know, we even export 10% of the hay alfalfa. Then the ones that the Japanese like it for Kobe beef is called Sudan grass. So we actually, 10% of all the livestock feed that's grown there actually goes in shipping containers, gets driven over to um, Long Beach, put on a container ship and sent to Japan. That's what you see all those containers sitting around there for because they're actually exporting Sudan over right. to Japan to grow beef there. So 10% of the um, food that we produce in Imperial Valley apparently gets exported to you know, almonds. Now, almonds. Yeah. They're water intensive. Very. Intensive. Yeah. I wonder, is has anybody said, oh, maybe we better think about the almond? Well, San Joaquin Valley, some real wealthy, I forget the guy, this real wealthy guy that at one point owned the Dodgers, had a big farm, has this big farm out there. He owned all these almond groves. What he did, had the storage district up there, it's called the uh, Semi-Tropic Water Storage District. They pump all this water down through the aqueduct, the California aqueduct, and then inject it in the ground to have a supply of water that's independent of the annual allocations. Because remember, almonds need water every year. So they work some schemes with the state legislature, and they do, and they have some big water storage districts. But even that's coming under intense pressure. They're pretty much shutting down the cotton production out in the valley, in the San Joaquin Valley, I think, because it's very water intensive and a low value, relatively low value crop. But the almonds are high value crop, pistachios. They'll probably keep going. But you're definitely right. It's a major user of the water, and um, you know you hear these stories. It really gets back to the larger issue of how can California capture more runoff water through the delta without harming all the harming all the endangered species. And there are some innovative ideas to be doing that that might become to fruition. Even like this winter, there's a massive amount of fresh water just got flushed out of all the uh, down the rivers because remember the Corps of Engineers runs most of those dams because they're flood control and their priority is making sure that they got enough excess capacity in that reservoir to hold a big runoff so it doesn't flood downstream Sacramento or some of the other cities. So there's, there's concepts of how to capture that. That's probably feasible from an engineering viewpoint, but I'm not sure how feasible it is from an environmental impact viewpoint. So, uh, but that's some of the solutions. And again, there be more and more pressure on the Imperial Irrigation District to cut down its irrigated agricultural land. But you know, if they have these billion-dollar uh, lithium production plants there that are employing a lot of people, and maybe that's an offset in terms of not having an economic impact that's so adverse. And those companies can write out big checks to do environmental mitigation and maybe keep some of the wildlife uh, habitats going, et cetera. But I think your point, uh, Cal, earlier was correct. When they do, they never addressed, because I had the same question. I saw that, but okay, this is kind of, you don't mention anything about the water it's going to take to run all these big plants. And unless you shut down a lot more farm fields, you're going to take that out of business. But that's, and I think the technology still needs to be proven out at scale. But, um, and, you know, it's good to see three companies doing R&D and trying to make this work. You know, a lot of demand pull from the from the um, automotive companies because they realize being reliant upon battery sources and places that aren't really totally friendly trade partners with the United States may not be in their own financial interest. If you invest all this money in those big auto plants to build these, you better have some idea where the people can get their batteries. But that's a whole other subject matter and gets into California power issues and things like that. But anyhow... Hope everyone enjoyed and can follow me on this. Unfortunately, it's a complicated situation. I was there at the point in time where the, it turned out that the feasibility of keeping the Salton Sea as a recreational and habitat-friendly and usable water body 
multiple purposes, which is what you need to do to keep your uh, water rights perfected. Ran into the, uh, you know, the politics of the Colorado River water was not going to let that happen as long as they could have some influence over the state legislature. Problem was not the federal level, it was the state level that didn't want to see that happen, basically. It's going to continue to contract and have impacts, I guess, but it shouldn't be anything all that dramatic because it'll just, it'll just salt, salt up a little bit like Laguna Salada as, as it retreats. The fact that it used to have a lot of odors when it was still more of a um, functioning water body because you occasionally had some sulfur upsets, hydrogen sulfide would come to the surface, but that'll stop once it gets a little bit more eutrophic, which means it lacks oxygen. The organisms that were producing that will die off. So there's kind of a self-saving reality there that'll, that'll take place. You wish that the beautiful habitat for the, all the migrating wildlife, uh, wild birds, is going to die away. You know, I used to see a lot of pelicans and seagulls there, even though I don't, don't see them anymore. Yeah. I know that the Colorado River produces more silt than any other river. Correct. Are we in any kind of danger? Because I know that sediment is building up in the various dams, mm-hmm. and it is the most dammed river. river. Are we in any danger that those dams could eventually just give way and just say, screw this, and just come flooding back? Are we going to just take this other path and then uh, go to our lowest point at the Salton Sea again? Well, the... Um the, the upper, the Glen Canyon Dam, which is what forms Lake Powell, that has enough capacity probably that it can take some more silt and not really um, cause too big a problem. The water level gets too low, though. What the problem is, the intakes for the turbines go above water, and that creates a problem. The dam that diverts for Imperial Irrigation District, it's called the Imperial Dam. It's north of Yuma. They have, as they divert the water, there's a big siltation basin where they actually let the water desilt before they put an All-American Canal. I haven't heard major silt problems. By the way, when I worked in Afghanistan, we had some dams there I worked on when I was working for the U.S. government over there. They, they, they all, that, that was our big problem. They silted up so much, we, they lost all their capacity. So you had to raise the dam, but that's not always feasible. So anyhow, that, but yeah. Uh, I haven't seen that problem put out as a big issue. It's, it's actually the opposite to the extent that that's why they did this 3 million acre feet a year of retaining the water into the um, upper basin lakes, you know, Lake, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, mm-hmm. because that would keep the turbines, um, the intakes for the turbines uh, under uh, water and, um, and and not have other issues. But that's, um, that's only, theoretically only temporary, but I think They'll probably work out when this is over in five years. I think it's a five-year deal. They'll remember IID is not giving up that water; it's just not taking it and letting mm-hmm. it be stored for them, which they do anyhow. By the way, people make it sound like that was the major deal of the century. No, there was just some water management uh, issues that have some fairly short-term, uh, you know, possibilities. But um, one of the things that's going on right now in the Colorado River water rights arena is Indian tribes are now coming back and mm-hmm. demanding their historical water rights. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, into some you're very conscious now of minority rights and issues and U.S. history not always being uh, the most, uh, what's the word? Uh, kind. Kind, uh, <laughs> kind treatment of, uh, and I think Mexico knows something about that too, by the way. That um, Definitely Mexico. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's going to that's gonna affect some water rights, particularly in Arizona. You know, by the way, by the way, right now in Phoenix, the Phoenix area, you can't get a water right to build a new, developers cannot put in new subdivisions unless they can prove they have the water rights. And there's almost a curtailment of residential construction because until they change some rules or reallocate or do something, uh, you can't really um, build new units there. And they, you know, there's buying water rights from farmers and transferring the water that we did. California started to allow that for a while, but then the California outlawed that. 
I told you the story about how the IID guys, by the way, all the landowners and that run these big farms in IID, they don't live in Imperial County. They live in La Jolla. They hire people to run their farms. You know, hey, if they could get out of the farming business and just sell their water rights and, you know, live like a millionaire on the coast, they would be doing that. But that's, in the state blocked that. There's too many, even in early 2000s, there was still enough respect for the um, farm communities and the and the tertiary impacts and those sorts of things that they weren't going to allow that to happen. But I'd say Arizona, of all the, I didn't throw these numbers out, although California gets 4.4 million total acre feet. Some of that's, and then, as I mentioned, IID gets most of that, 2.8 million. All of Arizona gets the same as IID 2.8. So that, that's kind of the difference. Get this, Nevada gets 300,000. Las Vegas gets 300,000. So that's why they're always in trouble up there. That's why they, you can't have a lawn anymore. I don't know how they do their golf courses, but they must do something. But they, they get such little water rights that they're, they buy some water, I think. They trade water. Some places in northern Nevada, they actually, there's some groundwater that they, I think they pipe down. Now, that was a project I heard about when I was doing this. But, um, but the West is, the whole Colorado River water system is oversubscribed in terms of historical levels. That's why, um, as I mentioned earlier, maybe it was a good thing we didn't do that massive economic development project in the Salt Sea area because it might have been, Stranded, you know, for very, you know, all sorts of reasons. And um, mm-hmm. no, there's never been any sanity to the water rights system and water use. And I mentioned the economics are all over the place, you know. You know, hopefully some government people will uh, figure this out and make some smart decisions and uh, go buy some other things. It's not, yeah. not too optimistic. Yeah, I'm that's not going to hold my breath. Yeah, yeah, never, exactly. And I tell Elena and people, my wife, I say, you know, here we you know we get groundwater off the mountains over here. Mm-hmm. So San Felipe has a very reliable municipal water supply. It's not dependent on the normal uh, weather patterns and things that have overcreated or replenishing groundwater. We don't have that much agriculture. No one's pumping groundwater for agriculture. So that's kind of why San Joaquin Valley has that problem. And uh, so that's, I mean, we're not in bad shape in that whatsoever. So that's good to know. I mean, so we're thinking that maybe that's another good reason to live down here. Yeah, is that well, I was going to say, yeah, that's a great yeah. segue into why you're here. Well, because I can get water. <laughs> well, that, and it ties into my salt and sea story. And Elena would come down and stay with me, you know, for weekends and things and golf tournaments when there was one outside my back door because I was, lived on PGA West. But anyhow, um, as I mentioned, so you're you're a big golfer. No, I I, I, I was I was purely uh, a, you know a spectator. But we came down. We have that we have our van. You know, we have this uh, Volkswagen uh, Vanagon from the late '90s, early '90s. So we love to do beach camping and trips and that. So we drove back and forth through here several times when I was living in La Quinta for three years, three and a half years. And that's about when Pat Butler was getting his Eldorado Ranch project. What years were these, more oh, or less? Four, four or five, something like that. Four or five, six. I think we I think we bought our lot in 06 and didn't have any great expectation of building right away. But we just thought this could be, we both like traveling down here. We both like living here. We like the culture, the food, the people. So, and I'm a warm weather person. So I'm definitely going south, not north, you know. So uh, that's kind of what selected us. And as I mentioned, I've been down here a little bit with some of my friends from the Salt and Sea Authority. So we bought the lot and we didn't really think too much about doing anything right away because I was still in my mid-50s and she was in her 40s. So, um, But then I started working overseas for the government. Um, I worked two years in Iraq and six years in Afghanistan doing... I realized I'd be coming back, so we started building a home here in about 09, 010. And then I would come home three times mm-hmm. a year and typically, um, you know, come down here and check on what's going on, stay here sometimes. And then when she retired, Lena retired in about... 15, I think 2015. We still have a house in Northern California, but we um, go back and forth. We have three kids up there and uh, they're married. Now, one of them threw us a curveball because they lived in San Diego County. We always counted on them being around here to 
be our frequent visitors and we could go up there and, you know, relatively short drive. About two years ago, they moved to Raleigh, North Carolina to be part of the Research Triangle Park um, thing. And it's kind of made it more difficult to... Um, a little monkey wrench in that yeah, one, yeah. I was going to mention about what were some of the problems of being down here. When I, we first started building and lived here the first couple of years, they, they still had that flight going from San Diego Airport to uh, the airport here. Little puddle hopper, you know, that once you got to San Diego Airport, though, you could go anywhere. So that made it easy for family and friends to come down. We've done that. We did that quite a bit. But I think about 10 years ago, or maybe not, maybe eight years ago, that stopped, 2015 or something. And um, then it made it much more difficult having people come visit you in uh, just purely the transportation time and effort to get down here. And um, so that kind of didn't meet our expectations. We thought we'd have more family events down here and people coming down uh, using the air service. And um, then, of course, we live, as I said, since we built our house and lived here, it seems like the perception of cartel violence has gotten more problematic and that discourages people who want to come. And as you know, it doesn't really affect our area and even our border crossing hardly at all. But people don't make that correlation when they read something in the paper about some violence over by Ensenada or something over Metamortis. Metamortis is not even way over by Texas. You know Texas, I mean? yeah. And Brownsville. And, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, okay, well, so that we've, that's been a little bit of an issue. We feel safe. We're not in any idea we're going to move for any particular reason. So that's, that's good for us and um, just enjoy being here. Otherwise, in terms of the friends we made and the community we have, the sense of community. Um, I enjoy the weather, the uh, sunrises and sunsets. Um, love that. And the ambiance of the whole place it just sort of suits me quite well. We're glad we're here. And um, as I said, some interesting personal background on how we got here and um, what uh, caused us to find San Felipe in the first place. And uh, we still enjoy taking our van trips to go down south to you know, Loretto or uh, La Paz and just really nice. Uh, and we have friends who are in the same sort of travel club that we are that do that with us. So uh-huh. we've had six or eight of those vans at our house sometimes hang, you know, hanging out here doing things like that. So we enjoy that. It's a lot of information. Yeah, a lot of information. I mean, yeah. that I didn't know about the Salton Sea. I mean, Mm-mm. I've known something about Mm-mm. it, but not... Or all of, you know, Coachella Valley, yeah. Imperial yeah. Valley. That's... Because right. yeah. you, I, mean, you know, I travel back and forth. We, we all do. We have mm. to, to yes. you know, go through. And and I often wonder, there's so much agriculture and yeah. you and there's more and more people like... I lived in Vegas from 78 to 82 and it was just like a small community. Mm. It was never meant to have as many people there as I did. It's a desert. Yeah. yeah. It's a desert. Mm-hmm. But, you know. I used to know that how they make that work on their relatively small allocation of river water, but that's mm-hmm. they were the last ones to start diverting, and that's kind of how that system works, you know. And, but, you know, at some point, politics will take over. I, I, you know, they almost did this year, by the way. It came really close to the federal government just passing some legislation that would have changed all this stuff. And I think um, IID got smart and said, we're going to just, we'll do some voluntary cutbacks, as I just described. But I, there's there's a lo- there's a long-term misappropriation of water in the system, and that's going to eventually salt, catch up. With, catch up. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. so I said, there's a silver line a little bit, and if they can get some big lithium production industry started up there, at least it won't, it won't be driving through a ghost town when we go back up to Palm Springs, Palm Springs or, right. or further north. But um, it's a precarious situation still. And um, again, we're, we're lucky that the border issues don't directly affect us here. I mean, that's one of the things that's nice about where, our, where we come and go and things we do. So um, anyhow, that's kind of um, the background on that. Thank you very much, Thank Ron. you, Ron. We that really was... appreciate your time. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it too. Yeah, water is a big deal. Yeah. yeah. So it's nice to hear yeah. from somebody who knows what they're talking, talking about. about. Yeah. 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 And the, Thanks. Good. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My pleasure to join you ladies and uh, participate in your broadcast. I, it's great that you're doing this so we get more. I, I love to learn more about other people who live down here and this yeah. is one way to do it. I mean, well, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the whole point yeah. of Turn Left at the Cactus is yes. that and, uh, there are, you know, it's our, our golf course down here is called that, Las Caras. 
caras. That's right. Las caras de México. And this is the voices of, the voices. of San Felipe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very Thank, much. Thanks a lot, Okay, okay. Appreciate yeah, it. I look forward to, to speaking with Elena. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah that'll be next. Yes. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. We want to thank Ron Ensweiler for providing us with his vast expertise on a subject that really does deserve more of our attention. For anyone wishing to learn more, not just about the salt and sink, but also about Ron's experiences with project developments in the Middle East, we have no doubts that he'd be more than willing to sit and visit. We'd also like to say thanks to Linda Wiggins for providing the introduction to this episode. So, hope everyone enjoyed trekking down another fork in the road as we continue in our search for where to turn left at the cactus for no bad days. Mm-hmm.